0: Good morning to you guys. It's good to see you guys. Uh, please grab a Bible. We also have the sermon handouts over here on the resource table. Um, you might want to grab one of those sermon handouts because today's passage has some some good stuff about the gospel and about salvation in it. And I really want you to track with these arguments. So if you haven't grabbed one, you can get a clipboard and a sermon handout over there as well as a Bible if you need one. But go ahead and flip over to Acts chapter 10 verses 34 to 48. Acts chapter 10 Verses 34 to 48. And uh, we are going to actually finish the account of Cornelius today. We started that two weeks ago, and we're going to finish that today. But I want you to think about this this is not just some random detached story in the book of Acts. Luke, the inspired author of Acts, has a tightly structured narrative uh, argument or presentation. And so the ripple effects from what happens in the story of Cornelius are going to ripple all throughout the rest of the book of Acts and all throughout the rest of church history. So I want you to think about it not as just some kind of side thing that's happening. And the realization that the gospel is for everyone, both Jew and Gentile, which is the big point of today, that realization that the gospel is for everyone is a huge turning point, both in Luke's narrative, but also just simply put in the, in the history, the early history of the church and all throughout the church which would quickly become a primarily Gentile organism. Um, so I want to start out by, by, by saying this. Last week, uh, I used an illustration that was perhaps more problematic than it was helpful. <laughs> uh, you know, it's when you're preaching and teaching, you, you, you know, you come up with illustrations and such and you hope they make sense. Maybe sometimes they don't always make as much sense in, in y'all's heads as they do in my head. But... Um, but I spoke of a fictitious man on a roof, uh, and he was in a flood, and he was crying out to God to save him, to save his life. And the man was expecting, basically what you infer from the story is the man's expecting some supernatural, incredible event to save him off this roof during the flood. And, and so he misses the ordinary means by which God Answers his prayer, the ordinary means that God sends to to rescue him and save his physical life from the flood, the raft and the boat and the helicopter throwing down the the rope. And he's always like, no, 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 I'm waiting for God, thinking, oh, it's going to be this incredible thing, not these ordinary means that God sends. So the point of the illustration was not to say that we can resist God's saving work in our life, that we can stiff arm God. That was not the point. The the whole point was that we can sometimes miss God's ordinary, straightforward responses to our prayers because we're expecting something extraordinary. Anytime God works, it's extraordinary. But the way we see it, we're like, oh, that's just that ordinary thing, okay? And and I talked about, when I was sharing that illustration, I talked about a real-life scenario where I was in a coffee shop talking to a guy, and I was having this spiritual conversation. We were talking about the gospel, And this this guy, he was not a Christian yet. Eventually he would become a Christian, which is fantastic. But he was not a Christian yet. He was seeking God and he was praying that this God of the universe would make himself known to this guy. Okay, And he was frustrated with God's seeming lack of response until he realized that the guy sitting across from him, the ordinary dude sitting across from him at the coffee shop talking about the gospel, talking about Jesus Christ, me was God's means of revealing himself. It was the way that God was making himself known to this guy. But it was just ordinary old me, not some miraculous supernatural event as this guy was expecting. This is God's ordinary means of leading people to faith in Christ. And and we, we can't afford to miss this. He sends a person to share the good news of Jesus with someone whose heart has been prepared to hear it and to respond to it even in the thing that happened with Saul on the road to Damascus, the risen Lord in his glory appearing to Saul the persecutor, even then he sends him to a member of the church to have his hands laid on him and prayed over him and to be baptized by him, right? This is God's ordinary means. And this is exactly what we see in the conversion of Cornelius. And really the extraordinary thing about this story, especially to the original audience who are actually there for this, the extraordinary thing was that the person who responded to the good news of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, wasn't Jewish. That was the extraordinary thing in this context. So the big idea for today is that the gospel is good news for everyone. The gospel is good news for everyone, so anyone can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And by anyone, I mean anyone I don't care what they look like. I don't care what choices they've made in life. I don't care. Anyone can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's look at how this plays out in today's passage. First, let's consider what acceptance is, and then we're going to see what acceptance entails, what it leads to. So, first of all, what is acceptance in a biblical sense? Now, you guys have all heard this word before, but what does it mean in a biblical sense in the context of today's passage? We hear similar words today. We see bumper stickers, uh, words like tolerance. Uh, We see church signs, you know, banners in front of churches emphasizing that all in capital letters are welcome. Is that, is the message that's being conveyed in those bumper stickers and those signs, is that what today's passage is talking about in terms of acceptance? Acceptance. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Let's look at the first part of our passage in verses 34 to 43. So here we see three aspects of God's acceptance that that we see in this passage. First of all, we see who can be accepted by God. Next, we see what it means to be accepted by God. And then thirdly, how we can be accepted by God. How can this salvation happen? How can this being saved, being accepted by God, happened. So let's begin by looking at those three aspects of biblical acceptance. In verses 34 and 35, we see who can be accepted by God. And I'll read it. Opening his mouth, that's like a, a kind of a catchphrase to, to, to focus us in on the fact that we're about to get this solemn testimony, this uh, evangelistic speech from the mouth of Peter the Apostle. It says, Opening his mouth, Peter said, And this is to Cornelius and his Gentile family and friends, his household. He said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, to play favorites. But in every nation, that that is not just in Israel, but in every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In other words, God doesn't show personal favoritism. It's not about, oh, I like, I like him, but I, I don't like her, okay? This is not how it works with God. He accepts anyone who what? Who fears him and does what is right, right out of the text, okay? But I need to explain that a little bit more. So in this context, this, this word for fear, the Greek word that we translate fear In this context, it refers to having a profound measure of respect or reverence. A profound reverence, sense of awe towards God. And that that, that fear of the Lord, which we know from the Old Testament is the beginning of wisdom, right? This fear of the Lord is the internal reality of a faithful response to God. Even before you ever hear about Jesus Christ... I mean, that people, again, Paul talks about this in Romans 1 with regard to creation. When you look up at, at the majesty and the volume, the size, the, the uh, beauty of, of creation, the stars, the galaxies, the universe, and you think the creator that made this must be so powerful, so beautiful, so amazing, so awe-inspiring, that it should create in the creature a sense of awe, a sense of fear, appropriate fear, Right? So that's the internal uh, reality of a faithful response to God, believing that he is who he appears to be. He is who he claims to be in Scripture. Now, let's look at the second aspect of that. Doing what is right literally means works righteousness. It literally means working righteousness or performing righteousness. Okay, And, and this is the external reality of, again, a faithful response to God. Because think about it, these are connected. When you have an internal response of fear of the Lord, what does that produce externally? You want to do what He wants you to do. You want to abide by His laws. You want to you live in light of His character. You want to do what He wants you to do, what you think God would want you to do. You know, Saul's not going to go, Oh, I'm so fearful of the Lord, and He's so amazing, He struck me blind. I'm going to keep persecuting His church. <laughs> It just doesn't happen, okay? So this is the internal and the external realities that he's talking about. And in verse 35, I, I need to nuance this because in, this, in, in the NASB uh, 2020, uh, you'll have it in different words in, in yours if you have NIV or ESV translations. But mine says acceptable to God in verse 35. You can look at yours, whatever it says. But that Greek term that, that is being translated as acceptable to God in verse 35... It pertains to being met with approval in his company uh, or to be welcome. Such people are welcomed by God. Now, this isn't the same thing as being justified before God. If if please don't miss this and go off and go, hey, Pastor Ben said that if you fear God and you do good things and social justice and help people and walk people across the street and all this stuff, then you're going to be saved and justified before God. No, absolutely not. What this term is referring to is being welcomed by God, okay? In your approach towards God, he, he, he beckons you. That fear of the Lord and that, and that wanting to do what he wants you to do And so it's not the same thing as being justified or being said, you know, you're not guilty, you're righteous, you're holy. All right, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. It simply reveals that God chooses in his grace, he chooses to respond to our faithful response to him by further revealing himself to us. He he graciously chooses to kind of do a little bit of a dance with us and And sort of as we respond internally and externally in those ways, he welcomes us closer. He gives us more illumination, more revelation. Eventually, the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again. Cornelius, you've got to understand this, he was already a worshiper of Yahweh. He was already a worshiper, just like the Ethiopian eunuch. He's already a worshiper of the God of Israel. He feared God, Cornelius in particular. He feared God. He did what was right in God's eyes. I mean, Luke makes this abundantly clear earlier in Acts chapter 10, where he describes Cornelius uh, several times, but in uh, chapter 10, verse 2, he calls Cornelius a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, even taught his household to fear the Lord, and made many charitable contributions to the Jewish people. He knew these were God's chosen people, so he's just dumping out contributions, donations, benevolence onto God's people, these Jewish folks in the nation of Israel and then it goes on to say and he prayed to God continually and I love how Dr. Daryl Bach um, explains what it means to be acceptable to God in verse 35 again acceptance by God in a salvific in a saving sense not what we're talking about here so this is how Dr. Daryl Bach who wrote a great commentary on Luke and Acts He explains that acceptable to God in verse 35. He says, the point is not that Cornelius earned righteousness as his due. And he references Romans 4, 5. So it's not that Cornelius earned righteousness as his due, but that his responsiveness leads God to send Peter to reveal more of God's way to him. As the rest of the speech points the way to what Cornelius now must do. So it doesn't stop short and go, bravo, Cornelius, you're saved. No, no, no. God sends somebody, a normal dude, okay? Peter, flesh and bone man, to go share further revelation, to share the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. I love that. So in verses 34 and 35, we see that anyone can be accepted by God in the sense of being welcomed by God and given further revelation about his plan of salvation, okay? Then in verse 36, we see what it means to be accepted by God in this saving sense, okay? So not to be acceptable in the sense of being welcomed into further revelation to eventually salvation when you trust in Christ. But now let's look at what it means to be accepted by God as righteous, as holy, okay? To be able to come into the presence of our holy God. So look at verse 36. It's put really simply here. But Luke writes, well, Peter says in Luke writes, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching what? Preaching peace through Jesus Christ. And then parenthetically, he reiterates, he is Lord of all, all people, all nations. So what are they preaching? Peace through Jesus Christ. So again, even in that he is Lord of all parenthetical statement, we're seeing this emphasis that anyone can be accepted by God. Because why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord of everyone, both Jew and Gentile. And here we see the ultimate outcome of God's acceptance. The ultimate outcome of God's acceptance is our peace with God, which is established by the work of Christ. This goes into the Old Testament, the Jewish concept of shalom. This this peace that exists between the creature and the creator, between us and our God, that eventually wells up in an inner peace in our own hearts. It it wells up in a peace with our fellow man and creation. But that peace with God is what's established through the work of Christ, and that's the message they were preaching. And that that was the message Jesus preached to, to the sons of Israel. Jesus went to Galilee and to Judea and to Jerusalem, preaching that peace with God that was central to his message of the kingdom. How do you become a citizen? Citizens of the kingdom of God are at peace with God, right? Citizens of the king, Lord Jesus, have peace with Jesus, right? He's their king. So that's what he was preaching. That's what his apostles were preaching, both to their own fellow Jews, which we see in Acts. But also now, especially as Acts unfolds, to Gentiles like Cornelius, this idea of how can you have peace with God? So being accepted by God begins with a faithful response of a humble heart. And that could be years of responding with that faithful response. Or it could be short term like we saw with Saul's life, right? Um, And he had honestly his misconception of of God. uh, He had had years of fearing the God of Israel. He just didn't understand that Jesus was God. Okay. So all that to say being accepted by God begins with a faithful response of a humble heart which fears God and seeks to live in accordance with his will And ultimately gets frustrated that we can't when we realize that we can't be perfect. We can't be righteous enough to be in God's presence. But ultimately leads to trusting in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, as our Savior in that plan of salvation. So in verses 37 to 43, we now see how we can be accepted in the specifics of this message of salvation. This is where we get in the gospel presentation. This is really fun. So Peter says this. He's sharing the gospel like he's like, this is what God's sent me to do. I'm going to share the gospel. Cornelius in his household. So he goes, you yourselves know you guys have been around uh, Caesarea for long enough in Judea. You've been around long enough to know, you know, the thing that happened throughout Judea, starting from Galilee. Right. Which is where uh, Nazareth was. It's where the ministry of Jesus began. Starting from Galilee after the baptism, which John, that is John the Baptist, proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things that he did, both in the country of the Jews, that is inclusive of Galilee and Judea, and in Jerusalem, the capital of Judaism. And then he goes on to say this. So that's the life and ministry of Jesus he just referred to. Now he says, they, meaning the, these uh, fellow Jews in Jerusalem, they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. You could also include the Roman soldiers and Pilate and that whole crucifixion account. But he says, they also, those in Jerusalem also, put him to death by hanging him on a cross. It's literally by hanging him on wood. And, uh, th- but then he says immediately, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he be revealed, not to all the people. It's not like he, this is it. He's just going to introduce himself to the world as the resurrected risen Lord. But, but who, who was he revealed to? By God's grace, not to all the people, but to witnesses who had been chosen beforehand by God, that is to those... Uh, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead, further showing that he had a physical resurrected body, he ate and drank with them after he arose from the dead. And then verse 42, it says, and Jesus ordered us to preach to the people and to testify solemnly that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And then he ends this section by saying all the prophets, all these Hebrew prophets testify of him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, guys, I get that's a lot. That's the water hose coming at you. Okay, so let's unpack that. These verses present the gospel, which is technically means the good news. That's what we mean by gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And we've got this great uh, family devotional that we do at our house, and it over and over again it reiterates what the gospel is for our kids in a way they can understand. It says the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our salvation. She knows it because we repeat it so often. But it says life, death, and resurrection for our salvation. Now, you could include other information in a gospel presentation, but this is the, this is the basics of the gospel, his life, death, resurrection for our salvation. Now, in verses 37 to 39, Peter speaks of the life of Jesus. I said this earlier. It's his life and ministry. It's it's this Jesus who is called Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, but who grew up from childhood in Nazareth, this out-of-the-way podunk town in Galilee. So it speaks of his humanity, the fact that he was incarnated. He's fully human and fully God. And Peter also speaks of his earthly ministry, a, a three and a half year ministry, which began when he was baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist in the Jordan. And, and then he received power, empowerment through the Holy Spirit. You remember this? The Holy Spirit came as a dove descending from heaven and rested upon him. He received. He didn't go out in his own power, in his own effort, but he humbled himself to receive empowerment through the Holy Spirit to empower him for his ministry. Okay. Um, Not that he wasn't God and not that he wasn't divine, okay, but but he humbled himself in that way. So he receives empowerment through the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus used his power to do what? Famously, Mark tells us this. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, right? So he's using his empowerment to serve and to minister to people by healing them and by freeing them from the oppressive influence of the devil, the devil is the great architect of sin and pain and suffering and death. Okay, now it was as a result of human sin that led to that, but he was the great tempter and still is, okay? So he says to free people from the oppressive influence of the devil is one of the things Jesus was doing. That was one of the revelations of the kingdom, that I'm the king, the kingdom is at hand. Look at what I can do. Look at, I can cast out the enemy. I can heal this. I can, you know, he's speaking of, of, of the kingdom, that was the good news of the kingdom. All right, so uh, in all of this, what we see is that God is at work in and through the life of ministry of Jesus. Remember, it says, for God was with him. He was God, but he was also empowered by God the Spirit, and, and God the Father was with him in that ministry. He was God's anointed king and savior. He was God's anointed king and savior. Anointing, it's, it's the word that we say Messiah or Christ in the Greek. He's the anointed one of God, okay? All right, in verse 39, Peter also explicitly tells Cornelius that Jesus was put to death by his fellow Jews, and of course also the Roman soldiers, in Jerusalem, and they did this by literally hanging him on wood. They hung him on wood. Now, we in our translations, we go ahead and fill that in by putting the cross, which was obviously made of wood, right? But it's so interesting because in the Old Testament, folks, being hung on wood in the form of being hung on a wooden tree in the Old Testament... That was a sign of being cursed by God. Cursed is the one who is hung on a tree, okay? And so in other words, even though Jesus was perfect and innocent, he was sinless, he was the the perfect sacrificial lamb. He was without blemish. But even though he was perfect and innocent, he became the cursed one, the one hung upon a tree, as the Old Testament puts it, by absorbing the full measure of God's wrath, He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, it says, okay? Uh, And that was the penalty for our sin. God's wrath towards our sin. And he took it all upon himself, okay? All right, in verses 40 and 41, Peter states that God raised Jesus from the grave on the third day. That's inclusive Friday, Saturday, Sunday, early Sunday morning when they went out to the tomb, he was raised. Okay, so on the third day, that is Sunday, he was raised by God's grace and power from the grave and and then he appeared to his followers including Peter who would become witnesses of his resurrection that's why he appeared first to the ladies at the tomb and eventually to the apostles and others a total of 500 disciples is what Paul tells us all right in verse 42 Peter describes what we call the great commission when he and the other apostles are sent out by Jesus himself to preach this good news and to help people understand what in verse 42, what are they helping people understand? They're helping people understand that Jesus would eventually return. He's coming back in just the same way he left at the beginning of the book of Acts and ascended up into heaven. He is coming back from heaven to do what? To, be, to come back as judge and to judge the living and the dead. And another way of, of saying that is all people. He's going to judge all people whenever in human history they existed, whether living or dead. He is going to come back to judge the living and the dead. And he's going to judge us according to our sin, according to our unrighteousness, which we all have. That's the bad news, right? But here's the good news. He won't judge us according to our sin if our sin has already been judged at the cross as a result of our faith in Jesus. Because that's the whole thing about the good news is that Jesus steps in as our substitute. He takes our unrighteousness. He takes what is worthy of God's wrath towards sin. He takes the penalty for our sin, the shame, the sin, the guilt. He takes it upon himself. He pays it. It's paid in full. It is finished, he says from the cross. That means paid in full. Okay? And then what does he give us? He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his perfect record. He gives us his holy standing before God the Father so that we can be in the presence of our holy God. That's the great exchange. And that's what happens through Jesus and his ministry. Our sin is judged either 2,000 years ago or it will be when he comes back. Those are your two options. And that's why people need to hear the gospel. Okay? In verse 43, Peter points out that God's prophets had been testifying about this good news. In other words, you go back to the Hebrew prophets, what are they saying? They're saying that we can receive forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus. Now, looking from this side of the cross, we can look back in light of the cross and the resurrection and see that. But a lot of people on the the front end of the crucifixion and resurrection, they, they didn't see that. Although it speaks to it clearly when we look at what the prophets say about sin and God's holiness and all these things. And this is how we can be accepted by God and have peace in our relationship with him. This is how we can have peace with God. So this is what acceptance means biblically. Regardless of whatever signs or bumper stickers or what you hear people say about this word acceptance, in a biblical sense, acceptance means God forgiving our sin. Not that we don't have sin, but God forgiving our sin and making it so that we can live at peace with him, again, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven as a result of our humble-hearted faith in the saving work of his Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what biblical acceptance means. So in the first part of our passage, we see what it means to be accepted by God. Now I want to turn briefly to the second half where we answer the question of what does acceptance entail? What does it lead to? What should it lead to? So let's look at that in our last few verses. Starting in verse 44, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, he's just about to get to the response part of come walk the aisle or raise your hand or whatever, you know. You need to repent. And some people say, well, this isn't an evangelistic sermon because, he, you know, in other, elsewhere in the book of Acts, they get to the like the response part of, like, here's what you have to do now. But while he's explaining the gospel, he hasn't even got to the response part. God fully interrupts him in his evangelistic speech and... Uh, And it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to his message. All the Jewish believers, remember he took six other Jewish men with him as witnesses to what God was doing here. All the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had also been poured out on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Very similar to what we saw earlier in Acts, in Acts chapter 2. So acceptance, two things. Acceptance by God always results in one thing, and it should always result in another thing. So let's look at what acceptance by God, this biblical acceptance that we just talked about, being saved, being justified, however you want to put it, being made right with God. It always results in spirit baptism. What do I mean by spirit baptism? Exactly what the text just described the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit falling upon all those who listened to his message and believed. This is what we know as spirit baptism, okay? That's the, that's the point of God sending his Holy Spirit. You ever wonder why it's always Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit? God is holy, holy, holy. The point of God sending his Holy Spirit to indwell those who trust in Christ, because listen to this, folks, our faith in Christ is what makes us holy before God. We are not inherently holy. We are not inherently righteous. Okay? We are bent towards selfishness and sin. We are unholy, unclean, and yet he makes us holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now, because we are holy, because we are clean, he sends his Holy Spirit to actually come inside of us, to live in us, and to be able to be in God's presence and have God's presence be in us. Because otherwise, the Holy Spirit would not come to live in us as the temple of God. That's what the New Testament says is the temple of God. That's why there's no concern anymore for the building of giant limestone blocks in Jerusalem. That was the temple. Before that, the animal skin stretched out during the wilderness wanderings, the tabernacle. That was where God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, in the middle of the tabernacle of the temple. But where is it now? It's in you and I, if we've trusted in Christ. We, individually, as Paul points out, but also corporately, as Paul points out, we are the temple of the living God. And unless we were holy, we would not be that, because he would not indwell us as unholy, unclean vessels, okay? You are holy in Christ. Uh, In verses 44 to 46, Luke's choice of language makes it abundantly clear that these Gentile believers were being baptized with the Holy Spirit in the same exact way as Peter and the other Jewish apostles back at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. How did this whole church get kicked off was in Acts chapter 2 when God poured out his Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles, these early believers. that that then became the church, the the foundation for it. And so this, in the exact same way, using some of the same language, the same thing's happening now, not to these Jewish apostles and early believers, but to these non-Jewish Gentile believers. And just like the Jewish apostles, these Gentiles speak in tongues, which in the context of Acts chapter 2 and elsewhere in Acts, these tongues seem to be referring to foreign languages. Now, it doesn't say that explicitly here, but in the context of Acts chapter 2, that seems to be what's happening is they're speaking with previously unknown human languages that are being understood by the, the audience, these seven Jewish men that are standing there. Okay? And they also heard them exalting God, much like in Acts chapter two, what did they hear him do? Saying the great and mighty saving works of God. They're reiterating these things. All right, so acceptance always leads to spirit baptism. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's not like a second thing that happens down the road in your Christian life. When you trust in Jesus Christ, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, acceptance by God should also always result in water baptism. Now, why do I say should here? Because that's something the church does. And we are fallible. Spirit baptism, that's something God does. He is not fallible. He will will make no mistakes. He knows exactly who's trusted in Christ and has been made holy. Now, acceptance by God should always result in water baptism. Look at our last three verses. I'll start halfway through verse 46. It says, Then Peter responded. Listen to this question he asks. He sees what's happening. He hears what's happening. He knows what's happening. God's prepared him with this vision that he's given him and all these other things we've talked about. And he asks this. He says, Surely no one can refuse the water for these, i.e. these Gentiles, these non-Jews, to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? It's a rhetorical question. He's like, of course we can't refuse them the water to be baptized. And so he, it says he ordered them, these other six Jewish men, uh, I'm sorry, he ordered uh, his, the guys that came with him to baptize Cornelius and his household in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days, which I won't get into that, but that's important. The fact that he actually not only baptized him but then he like stayed with them and ate meals with them like that was a big deal okay so here we see the church i want you to think of this as the church these seven men jewish men that went to cornelius's house and shared the gospel and then baptized them this is the church doing this so here we see the church accepting those who have already been accepted by god through faith in jesus christ they watched god accept these these guys these, these, this household okay And so they weren't about to deny acceptance on behalf of the church or through the church on behalf of God. So God interrupts Peter's evangelistic speech by pouring out his spirit on Cornelius and these other Gentile believers. And he did this in such an obvious way. This is one of the reasons they were speaking in tongues and exalting God. And it was this big event. Because these Jewish men needed absolute confirmation that what, was, that what just happened wasn't just Cornelius saying, okay, I believe now. Baptize me. It's God saying, I'm going to show you in a really obvious way. I'm going to confirm that these are truly members in the body of Christ. These are truly people indwelled by the Holy Spirit, made holy, people that I call clean, people that I call holy. And so he did it in this pretty amazing way. It was an obvious way because the Jewish believers would understand what was happening. Uh, speaking in tongues, and this, we can talk about tongues and First Corinthians and Acts and elsewhere in church history. But tongues has never been the normal means of people coming to faith in Christ. In, in Scripture, in the history of the church, period, today... speaking in tongues has never been the normal universal thing that happens when somebody trusts in Christ okay and again if that if you grew up in a different tradition or different denomination you want to talk about that I'm happy to talk about that and and kind of outline our position Um, but the the point is that that that's never been the normal experience of Christian conversion but here it testifies to what God has done and they needed this testimony in this context he has accepted these Gentiles because of Nothing else other than their faith in Jesus Christ. And he now considers them clean and holy vessels. It goes back to that, that vision that he gave Peter. Don't call unclean and unholy what I call clean and holy. Remember that? Kill and eat. Oh, no, not these unholy, unclean animals. I'll, I'll never do that. Like Don't call what I call holy unholy, is what he says. And Peter gets it. Which is why he asked that question. Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, can he? So God had accepted them, so his church must also accept them as full members in Christ. Guys, we can't afford to get that wrong in the church. If God has accepted someone, we must also accept them as full-fledged members of the body of Christ. Not some secondary status, but as full-fledged members. I don't care what they look like, smell like, sound like how much money they have, what they've done in their past, what they've done with their bodies, what they've done to their bodies. Whatever it is, if God has said they're holy, then we have to, as the church of Jesus Christ, embrace them as a brother or sister in Christ. We have no other option. We can't get that wrong. We can't put all this man-made tradition in the way to trip them up so that they never get to enjoy the blessings and benefits of being in the body of Christ. And we have to wrestle with that. But God had accepted them, so his church must also accept them as full members of Christ. And that's exactly what water baptism is. Guys, water baptism is not a personal, individual, individualistic devotional act that we do to ourselves to feel better about our faith. And I'm not saying that mockingly, but I am fighting against cultural tendencies to take the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper and to make them into mere individual devotional practices that sort of sort of warm up our faith a little bit okay that's not what they were in scripture and that's not what they've been historically in the church for the last 2000 years but in our cultural context we can transform anything into an individualistic thing a consumeristic thing so again i'm not saying that mockingly but what i'm saying is that that the water baptism in this context What is it? It's the church's official acceptance of someone as a full member, i.e., as holy and set apart through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the church saying, We as the church are officially acknowledging you that you are a full fledged member of the body of Christ, that you've trusted in Jesus Christ, that you've you've been made new in Christ. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. You're our brother, you're our sister. I don't care how old you are, whatever it is. That can come through a process of confirmation kids really young or whatever that's fine but eventually water baptism is the church a local church on behalf of the big c church saying this person's in solely based on their faith in jesus christ in the gospel okay that's that's what water baptism is so acceptance involves people trusting in christ Receiving the Holy Spirit through spirit baptism and being baptized by the church as a testimony of our faith in Christ and our full participation as members of the body. So, and I'll end with this. Today's passage tells us a lot about acceptance and this idea of biblical acceptance by God. The biblical concept of acceptance begins with God's initiative. We don't wake up one day and go, "Eh, I think I'll pursue God today. God starts Before he even creates humanity and the universe, he begins with you in mind, and then it rolls out from there, okay? And he comes after you, something amazing, at least in my life, I can see it. I was the fox, he was the hound. There's this, well, I won't get into it, but the hound of heaven who chases us down. Like, that's what he does. He comes after us. As we're stiff-arming and pushing and rejecting and doubting and sinning, he just chases after us and chases us down if we are his. And and he makes us his own, but through our faith in Jesus Christ. So this idea of acceptance begins with God's initiative to reveal himself to us and our humble-hearted acceptance of that revelation, which ultimately leads to accepting the saving work of his son, Jesus Christ, by faith. But unlike worldly concepts of acceptance or tolerance or whatever else you see on a sign or a bumper sticker... Peter makes it clear that it's not enough to simply believe in God. It's not enough to pray to God continually. It's not enough to fear and revere God. It's not enough to try and do what is right according to his righteous standards. It's not enough to get a Bible and go, I'm going to start doing all this stuff. It's not, none of that is enough. It wasn't enough in the life of Cornelius. It's not enough in the life of anybody who's ever existed today or any other time. So what is enough? Folks, justification, being made right with God. Justification comes only as a result of God's grace towards us through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Drop the mic. That's it. That's how we're justified before God. Therefore, we must not stop short of sharing the gospel in its fullness. If you see a person, if you know a person who is genuinely seeking God with a humble heart, it's our duty and our calling to help them understand the full gospel so that they can respond by believing in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. Guys, if you've got that sweet little old lady who's in your family, the aunt or the aunt or the grandma or the whatever, I'm not saying she's not the sweetest lady in the world and bakes incredible cookies and she's great and amazing and nice and kind and compassionate. But listen, even if she says, oh, I'm so blessed and oh, God is so good. If she doesn't know that Jesus Christ died for her sins on the cross and rose again and is offering her forgiveness and eternal life, that's not enough. We have to sit down over a cookie and some tea, but we have to share the gospel so that so that she can respond in faith and receive God's forgiveness in the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, if if you see that person, I hope you will. OK, uh, like, I'll finish this with Daryl Bach again. He explains all of what I just said in his commentary on Acts. He says, the case of Cornelius raises an interesting question. Given that he was respectful, that is, Cornelius was respectful of God, but had not yet responded to Jesus. Luke is aware that there are people, Luke gets it, he knows. He's aware that there's people in the world uh, who show respect for God. And Luke's account of them is respectful. He doesn't mock them. He doesn't make fun of them. He says, you're on the right track. But he recognizes that, they've, that they um, have not yet responded to Jesus. And then Bach writes this. He says, this does not mean, however, that Luke ignores that their spiritual state still leaves them in need of salvation. They can say, I'm blessed. They can say, God's good. They can say, I believe in a creator. They can be real nice and do righteous things but he, he still, they still need a, they are in need of salvation. And then he says, Their pursuit of God by itself does not exempt them or inoculate them from needing the forgiveness Jesus has obtained. There is a difference, he writes, between seeking and entering into fellowship with God. There is a is the difference between God welcoming you from afar as you, move, as you seek him, Okay and then actually being adopted as a son or daughter in God's household, in God's family. The gospel is good news for everyone, but salvation only comes by believing it. No other way. Next week, uh, the news of this conversion of Cornelius and his household is going to get to Jerusalem. So when Peter gets back, he's going to have to explain all this to the Jewish leadership there and the church in Jerusalem. And uh, it's a fun passage. So we'll look at that in chapter 11 next week. So let's pray. Please bow your heads with me.